since we're going to dive into some heavy stuff, I thought I'd begin with a somewhat funny story. In the 1950s, the surrealist painter Salvador Dali was commissioned to do a portrait of shipping tycoon Stavros Nyarkos. Okay? Now, Nyarkos was one of the richest men in the world at the time, and he wanted one of the world's prominent painters to do his portrait. We probably don't think of the surrealists as doing too many portraits, but Dali did a number of them. You can see a portrait that he did of his father on the screen in a second. And Dali is commissioned for $15,000 to do Nyarkos' portrait. The problem is, halfway through the sitting, Nyarkos gets bored with the whole experience and gets up to leave. Dali, uh, you know, as I said, a prominent painter, is uh, frustrated, to say the least, and protests. But Nyarkos says something to the effect of, you know, I've been sitting here for ages. Use your imagination. You'll be able to finish it. And then he leaves. That's not a good thing to say to a surrealist painter. You know, use your imagination. And so... Dolly proceeds to do just that and draws quite an unflattering nude body to accompany the face that he just finished. And then Dolly goes to a man by the name of Aristotle Onassis, who happened to be one of Dolly's chief business rivals. And instead of giving the portrait to Nyarkos, he sells it to Onassis for $25,000, $10,000 more than the original commission. There's actually more to that story that I don't have time to tell at this point, but the point in this somewhat comical little uh, story here is that, and that we all understand this, who you are working for, who you are employed by, who you're answerable to has a dramatic impact on the kind of work that you do, right? What one employer might consider faulty work or even repugnant, as in the case of this story, another might take great delight in. And we'll see, we actually have been seeing throughout the book of Judges, this sort of thing taking place. This morning in our uh, final chapters, we'll see a number of trends that we've seen throughout the book coming to sort of full fruition. And it revolves around this mistake of misunderstanding who God is and what he is like. And that misunderstanding leads to all other kinds of errors on the Israelites' part. As we said, we've slowly been descending in this downward spiral, and in these last chapters, we get to the bottom. But in these last few times, sort of circling the drain, as we've said throughout the series, um, the sort of revolutions are accompanied by this, this drumbeat that appears throughout these final chapters. We've mentioned it before, but it's this, this phrase, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that verse shows up, uh, that saying shows up many times in these final chapters, and we'll talk about the significance of it uh, in a few minutes. But for now, because we're we're, uh, covering five chapters um, here at the end of Judges, I'm going to just summarize uh, what happens. You can follow along in your Bible if you want, but I'll kind of summarize these. It's really two stories um, that take place in these final five chapters. So the first... We're introduced to an Israelite man, Micah, who sheepishly returns a large sum of silver to his mother when he hears her cursing the thief. He says, "Uh, actually, I I took it. Uh, And then his mother commits this set of horribly conflicting set of actions. First, she, she blesses her son in the name of the God of Israel, in the name of Yahweh, and commits all the silver to God. But she then takes only a portion of it, presumably keeping the rest, and tells her son to melt it down and make an idol out of it. 
Micah does so, and we discover at that point that he actually has a whole collection of idols and cult objects that he worships, and that he's installed his own son as personal priest over them. Micah then, though, he encounters a young, wandering Levite who's just sort of meandering around the countryside, and and Micah believes that he struck gold, because why have your own bratty kid as your priest when you can have a full-fledged Levite? And at that point, we discover that the Levite is really, uh, he has no allegiance to God. He's sort of a priest for hire because he is glad to preside over these idolatrous objects of Micah's if it means room and board. That's all he really needs. And this part of the story uh, concludes in verse 13 with Micah thinking, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. You can tell that things are not in a good place here. The narrative suddenly shifts a little bit, this first narrative, and we encounter the Danites again. The Danites are this tribe that we've talked about over the last little while, one of the tribes of Israel that failed to take their inheritance, failed to settle in the land that God had allotted to them. They had completely lost faith that God would give them the land he promised, and so they commission five spies to go and find easier pickings somewhere. And though we don't, we're not totally sure how or why, these five spies actually end up in Ephraimite territory, another tribe of Israel, at the house of Micah. And there they recognize the voice of the Levite. Perhaps the Levite had sort of wandered in his travels through Danite territory. They recognize the Levite's voice, and he then explains to them this great setup that he has working for Micah, being priest over these idolatrous objects. And Rather than seeing in the Levite's words his complete sort of moral and spiritual bankruptcy, these five spies, no, they say, well, well, inquire of Yahweh for us about how our mission is going to go. And so the Levite quickly gives, gives them this general vague assurance of success. They fully accept his endorsement, and they go on, and they find the city of Laish, an isolated, unsuspecting people who live in a rich, fertile area. Then these five spies hightail it back to Danite territory, and they say, we found the spot, let's go, let's get it. 600 men are rallied, and they set off for Laish. But on the way, somehow again, these five spies convince them to stop over at Micah's place, where they kidnap the Levite and steal all of Micah's idols. They sort of half convinced the Levite to go along with this by asking him, listen, would you rather be priest over one family or over a whole tribe? Come on, it's, it's an easy decision. So the Levite sort of half agrees to go along. Well, Micah is distraught that his gods have been stolen, so he pursues, but when he catches up to the Danites, they threaten to murder him and his family if he won't let this thing go. And here's how this uh, first narrative ends. We'll read chapter 18, verses 27 and 30. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made, and the priests who belonged to him, and they came to Laisha, people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword, and burned the city with fire. And then verse 30, and the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And listen to this last detail that we get at the very end. And Jonathan, son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. We learn the identity of this Levite at the end of the narrative. He's grandson of Moses, this priest for hire. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Each one did what was right in his own eyes. And we see in this first narrative that the people of Israel had completely lost sight of what faithfulness to God looked like. Each one is either sort of tweaking what they imagine Yahweh to be like or just finding their own gods that please them, 
and worshiping these gods however they see fit. Let's look at our second narrative. And friends, as Matt said, this this story, um, apart from the crucifixion of Jesus, I think this is one of the darkest, if not the darkest moment uh, in the scriptures. There's sexual assault, there's murder, there's all kinds of violence. Um, so, you know, just be aware that we're going to cover some, some dark themes here. So in this second narrative that falls uh, between chapters 19 and 21, we're introduced to another wandering Levite. This one, rather than being sort of the corrupt opportunist of the previous story, uh, this one seems to take more after Samson. What I mean is we meet him as he's going to try and repair his relationship with his concubine. Now, I think we've talked about this at various points in this series. We don't have a good understanding in the modern West of, of the, the, the person, the, the nature of what a concubine is. It's best to think of a concubine as a second-class wife who was perhaps expected to provide an extra child or two and at the very least uh, sexual satisfaction for her husband. And presumably because this woman is not terribly delighted with this arrangement, she leaves her husband and goes back to her father's house. Well, this Levite, after a period of time, goes to try and restore the relationship with her. And, you know, as, as much as a relationship between a man and his concubine can be restored. And they, they sort of patch things up in some way, and they're on their way journey home when they find themselves sleeping in the town square in a place called Gibeah, which is a settlement of the Benjamites, a tribe of Israel. Uh, this Levite and his concubine and his servant, they actually pass by the city of Jebus, which later would become Jerusalem, uh, but at this point is still occupied by Canaanites. And it's getting dark, and the servant says, should we stop here? And the Levite says, well, we can't expect good hospitality from Canaanites. Let's continue on until we find an Israelite settlement. So they end up in, in Gibeah. And after arriving there and being refused hospitality by all the locals, they're invited in by this old laborer on his way in from the fields. The laborer is actually an Ephraimite, in other words, from another part of Israel, but he's living here in Gibeah. And that night, as they're eating together, the men of Gibeah, which the writer calls sons of Belial, who's the angel of darkness, they surround the house and demand that the host send out the Levite for their sexual pleasure. The host is appalled by this request as it would violate both sexual norms and his hospitality. And we start to sort of root for this host. Like, yes, someone doing something right. But then we realize that he's really only caring about his own honor in regards to this male guest because he immediately suggests that instead the men can have their way with his daughter and the Levite's concubine. The men outside refuse this compromise, demanding that the Levite uh, himself be sent out. But then in one of the most ugly acts of self-preservation imaginable, the Levite shoves his concubine out the door. She's raped by the men outside, eventually manages to crawl back to the threshold, and at some point uh, dies of the injuries, the violence inflicted upon her. And in the morning, the Levite discovers her there quite callously, that he continues on his journey home with her body. And at some point, in some depraved desire for vengeance or maybe justification for what he did, he dismembers her body and sends the pieces to each of the tribes of Israel. And this is how this part of the narrative ends, chapter 19, verse 30. 
All who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. And apart from this woman, who's the victim of just unimaginable violence, and maybe her father, who shows a little bit of what it looks like to be a good host to the Levite earlier on in the narrative. Every other person in this story comes out of it absolutely drenched in evil, each one very much doing what was right in his own eyes. And this second narrative, then the narrator sort of zooms out. We realize all the Israelites are appalled when they hear the story of what's happened, and they rally to take vengeance on the men of Gibeah. Israel experiences a kind of unity that they haven't had in years. And perhaps because of that unity, they take two oaths together. Number one is that any Israelites who don't participate in taking vengeance on Gibeah will fall under the same sentence, the sentence of death. And secondly, that none of the Israelites' wives will ever again be given in marriage to the Benjamites. The only problem with this sort of quest for vengeance is that the Benjamites themselves, the tribe to whom these men of Gibeah belong, won't give the men up. And a civil war ensues. And eventually, the tribe of Benjamin is decimated. Men, women, and children are killed, and only 600 men are left. And though we're not sure why, perhaps because of this like brief newfound unity that Israel is experiencing, all of a sudden, they're grieved that the tribe of Benjamin will be no more. Chapter 21, verses 6 and 7 tells us, it says, And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since we've sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? And so they grieve, and then they find a a twisted loophole, because the Israelite settlement of Jabesh-Gilead, quite distant and far removed from this conflict, didn't come to participate in the quest for vengeance So the Israelites go and slaughter this settlement, sparing only 400 virgins that are there as wives for the Benjamites. I mean, there's a problem. The math doesn't add up. There's 200 Benjamites left. And so again, the elders of the Israelites have this pesky vow. We said we wouldn't give any of our wives in marriage to these Benjamites. What are we going to do for these remaining 200? So they find another loophole. They suggest to the Benjamites that are left that they go and abduct the remaining wives needed from a festival that's taking place. Because then, you know, we haven't broken our vow if they go and take these women. In verses uh, 23 to 25, close the book of Judges. The people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The second narrative goes from one woman experiencing unimaginable violence at the hands of wicked men to scores of women experiencing violence and displacement, this time in some deranged, misguided attempt to right a wrong. Rhonda Burnett Blesch talks about the the twisted nature of this logic. She says, Whereas unwarranted Benjamite lust provokes the military conflict, in other words, what the men of Gibeah did, and the slaughter of numerous Benjamites, the necessity for sexual relations with women to maintain one tribal group's patrimony legitimizes rape in another context. 
And if the first narrative friends showed us that the people of Israel had lost sight of how to be faithful to Yahweh, the second narrative shows us that they had completely lost sight of how to be faithful to one another. And here I want to give a, a little note. If you're here this morning and this is one of your first exposures to Christianity or the scriptures, maybe you're watching online, maybe you came this morning thinking that the Bible was sort of this clean, polished book of moral truths and principles, or or maybe just like a nice story about a, a, a kind fellow named Jesus, and this is not at all what you were expecting. The truth is, the scriptures, the Bible, is the story of people's deep, deep need for God and his gracious saving intervention in human history. And there are a few chapters in scripture that we don't see that more clearly than these. And as I said, we see in these chapters the culmination of a number of trends that have been growing or developing throughout the book. Three things, three trends. First, there were these kinds of misunderstandings that were being perpetuated year after year, generation after generation. A misunderstanding of who God is and what he's like. Well, Yahweh is probably just like all these other gods around us, the gods of the Canaanites, right? He's, he's probably somewhat petulant like these other gods are, easily angered. Think of all the times in the book that someone cowered in fear after God had just given them a mission to do. Or, you know, what's, what's pleasing to us as human beings is probably what's pleasing to God, right? So we'll make a careless sacrifice here or dedicate to him a handful of silver there. Or what we often see, what we saw throughout the, the uh, story of Samson, as long as the enemies of Israel are being destroyed, God's happy. That's all he cares about. Jephthah, Samson, others. And then if these misunderstandings of who God is and what he's like go unchecked, then all kinds of actions can be justified. If the people, as we saw, they misunderstood who God is and what he's like, and those misunderstandings continue on unchecked year after year, then vengeful, self-seeking, all kinds of wickedness can be justified. And it was. And then finally, entirely the wrong kinds of leadership were elevated. Because if our conceptions of who God is become warped, we'll justify all sorts of actions, and then we'll look for a leader who can support us in that, maybe even embody those ideals. And so we turn finally to this phrase, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. As I said, maybe there are some of you that are sort of, you didn't get to experience much of this series, and it would be easy in that case to hear that verse and assume, oh, okay, so somebody sort of wrote this to support Israel as they developed a monarchy, right, in their first sort of years of having a king, to bolster up support for the kingdom, or for the king and the monarchy. See, look how bad things were without a king. That's why we have one. But there are actually good suggestions, though, that the book wasn't composed immediately after the institution of a monarchy or maybe just before, but actually much later during another downward spiral. Again, if you've spent much time in the Old Testament, you know that Israel, after they instituted a monarchy, there were some good kings and then things 
again began a downward spiral, the reign of successive wicked kings who dragged Israel and then Judah into all kinds of evil. And read through that lens, the book of Judges is a response to those who believed that things would be better if only we didn't have this wicked king on the throne, or maybe if there were no kings at all. It's that wicked king Manasseh's fault. If we didn't have a king, of course we would be faithful to God. And to that, the writer says, well, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and people found their way into evil all on their own. And though I don't think any of us are guilty of the heinous sorts of crimes that we read about in this story this morning, we do have this same tendency in ourselves, the tendency to adjust, to modify our understanding of God in order to support what we see as the good life. And then we follow along with a leader who will paint a compelling picture of that kind of God. Think about Christian nationalism growing all over the world. Or the, the, the Christian leaders who say, God just wants you to be happy. Oh, just be happy. Or perhaps worst of all, you know, as long as you're given to the church, God doesn't really care about anything else. Where does this leave us, friends? I don't know about you, but these last few weeks, we've seen more Christian leaders and all sorts of actions coming to light. People being fired or stepping down, and it can start to feel a little bit hopeless. You know, how do we, how do we really know what God's like? Because this person says that God's like this, whereas this Christian leader says that he's probably more like this. How do we know what he's like? How do we know how he would have us live? And who can we trust to lead us into that kind of life? And to that, John 14 speaks some wonderful answers. The passage that Sam read for us. How do we know what God is really like? Well, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. We have, friends, the clearest picture of what God is like in the person of Jesus. Because at some point in God's good timing, he decided to stop allowing broken, flawed leaders like these judges we've been reading about to muddy the waters of who he is, what he's like. And he came down himself, put on flesh, and lived among us. Okay, but how do we know really how he would have us live? What does Jesus say in John 14? He says in verse 15 and 16, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Then verse 26, This helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Again, Jesus makes it wonderfully clear. We show our love for God by following in the ways of Jesus, illuminated for us and enabled by the Holy Spirit. Because if the book of Judges shows us anything, friends, it's that we can't do this on our own. We need help. Okay, you say, well, okay, Jesus gives us a picture of what, who God is and, and he shows us how to live, but where can we find a leader to help us live in that? Who can we trust? Look at verse 6 if you have open to John 14. I'll, I'll read it for us. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth, and the life. 
And later on, in verses 18 and 19, he says this to his disciples. He's talking about his, his coming death, but he says, I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you'll see me. Because I live, you also will live. Friends, we say this often at Church of the City, but we are deadly serious about it. Jesus is the leader of this church. It's not me. It's not Matt. It's not our elders. Jesus is the leader of this church because he is alive and his ministry continues today as it did 2,000 years ago. See, he rose from the dead. He then ascended bodily into heaven and he sent his spirit to empower us to be like him. And so when you hear me or Matt or others talking about following in the ways of Jesus, it's not something that we do kind of, you know, like Jesus' pictures on the wall as the sort of the founder of the company, and we say, Jesus would want this. You know, let's do it in remembrance of Jesus. No, we're doing it in him and through him and by him and alongside him. And so, Jesus, if Jesus is our leader, he's alive, his ministry continues, any of us who have the opportunity to sort of lead alongside Jesus as pastors or elders or staff in this church, if we don't point you to Jesus, if we don't love Jesus ourselves, if we don't smell a little bit like Jesus, those are problems. J. Oswald Sanders says it really beautifully. He says, This kind of spirituality is not easy to define, but you can tell when it's present. It's the fragrance of the garden of the Lord, the power to change the atmosphere around you, the influence that makes Christ real to others. And so, with this as our backdrop, we come to the communion table. I need one of those, Sammy. Thank you. Um, again, if, if you are new to the Christian faith, maybe you're watching online, you, you may not have a good frame of reference for what communion is. It probably seems rather odd. Uh, eating this little piece of bread, drinking some juice. Why do we do this? Well, we could talk for hours about the significance of communion. But in this moment, I want to highlight three things. Communion, firstly, is an act of remembrance. Where we remember that At one moment in human history, God stepped in. Jesus came showing us clearly what God is like. It's an act of remembrance. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. It's an act of rejuvenation, right? As we take this bread and juice into our bodies, we remember what Christ said, that he is with us and in us by his Spirit, empowering us to live like he did. It rejuvenates us. And finally, it's an act of submission, or we might say an act of worship, where we as followers of Jesus publicly declare that Jesus is our leader. He is king. He is Lord for now and all eternity. So with that, let's... If you are a follower of Jesus, let's participate in this together. Did you get the bread? It says in Matthew, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, he gave thanks, 
and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup. He gave thanks and offered it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, when we read passages like the close of the book of Judges, I hope it stirs within us a a deep gratitude that we did not have to forever imagine what God must be like, could be like, looking through this lens of these leaders or, or even just us trying to figure it out ourselves. You stepped into human history and you showed us and we love you, Jesus. Would you lead us day by day? Pray this all in your name. Amen.